1: Welcome back everyone to Conversations Live I'm your host Service Web. Glad you all could join us once again. But for our radio audience tuning in here in Mississippi at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all can be with us. Also, tuning in through our online affiliates around the world. We're glad that you all could be with us as well. Well, summer is fast approaching and if you're looking for a book to be able to add to your summer reading list, I think the book by our next guest will definitely be one you'll like. We're excited to welcome Darrow to our broadcast today. He's the author of the new book called Murder for Liar. We're going to talk to him not only about what it's like for him to write this book that's written in first person, which really makes it fascinating, but also the the different areas he's able to touch on in this book outside of the mystery element of it as well. If you guys are just now finding out about Verlin, we'll let you know how to stay connected with him and all the things that he's up to. Verlin, thank you again for the time. Really do appreciate you stopping by.
0: Oh, sure. I appreciate the opportunity to tell people about my book
1: look excited to to do just that so let's talk a little bit about this journey for you first Berlin before we get into murder for liar I mean this is not your first book but what has it been like for you to to write these stories that you enjoy and to see the way that readers are enjoying them too
0: um well part of it's fun I really love just kind of letting the plot fall out of me and and having the dialogue fall out of me and it, there's kind of a creative flow in my first draft that is just it's almost exciting, but then because I get that all done and leave all kinds of holes and missing things and a lack of description and everything else, then i got to go back and sort of trudge through all that. Therefore, by the time I'm done, I feel like, God, I put a lot of work into this. I sure hope people read it. I sure hope people like it. So it's very gratifying when that happens. Uh, it's it's just, it's sort of too much to throw yourself into without getting something back from it, if you know what I mean. Mm.
1: Oh, yeah. I totally, totally get that. So let me ask you this then, Verlin, when it comes to that. I mean, cause I, when I was reading, I think this is my first book to read of yours. So when it comes to a book like Murder for a Liar, what comes to you first? Is it the character or is it the situation you want to put the character in?
0: Um, usually it's it's nothing more than the situation and a, sort of a hint or two about who the character is. And often I don't have any other characters in mind. I don't have any plan besides just sort of this one idea and that makes it fun for me. Like I say, that you know, having things fall out of me kind of is, is the way it works without much of a plan. So, like the readers, it's like I'm excited to find out what happens next. And I wrap myself into little boxes and corners where I can't quite imagine how I could, you know, make any sense for the character to come out the other side of it or whatever. And then, if I can manage that once again, that's that's really satisfying. So, it, it doesn't start with much at all for me. Um, A character and a basic idea, and the character is completely unfleshed out. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know how he talks. I don't know if it's a woman or a man, sometimes even. And uh, that works for me. I think partly because in order to stay motivated, it has to keep being really interesting to me as not just a potential reader, but even through the process of the writing. Right.
1: So that brings us then to the main character, Tom, in Murder for Liar. Uh, Tom is an interesting uh, individual, uh, Berlin, and I, it, I think there will be readers who will see bits of themselves in Tom. I think I saw bits of myself in Tom, which I don't know what that says yeah, about me, yeah. but but I think I think he's one of these beautifully flawed characters, right, who is both someone Mm -hmm. who likes to help but finds himself in need of help. So I'm curious, talk to us about Tom and how he kind of came to you.
0: Um, Well, I really tried to, I'm I'm a therapist myself and Tom is a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And I've had some really challenging people come in the room, as he does early in the book, uh, with this character that that sort of gets him caught up in a whole bunch of crazy stuff that he has to try and sort out. And um, I know how therapists think. I know what happens in a session. I I, I know that after a long time of working with a great variety of people, including some psychotic and, you know, people that out in the world would just be seen as, oh gosh, this person's completely crazy. And of course they aren't, you know, there's an internal sense to them. Um, They're doing things that make sense to them. They're doing, making choices that given all the givens are of course, what's going to happen. And so I feel as though that's a bit of a rarefied, area where not that many authors can tap into what really goes on into a therapist's head while he's in a session talking to someone. And, you know, the whole book is in sessions in therapy. But from there, it became uh, a plot that actually, as, as wild as it is, has some autobiography woven into it. And it was a little bit mm-hmm. therapeutic to kind of write about what this other guy is dealing with somewhat similar to what I had to deal with but from the perspective of not me but him who hopefully right. is more flawed than I am and this was all before I became a therapist what I went through that was similar and so it, it's kind of a combination of you know being interested in the the topic or the content because I had to work through that same stuff that he's trying to work through although in my case no murders no this no that no the other I mean you know the plot is definitely more interesting than could simply happen to a person in their life, or at least I hope so, but but that's kind of the background by, by, you know, the, what was it that, that drew me to write about this particular thing, a sense of, well, I know about the kind of spiritual crises and development that he has to go through in order to cope, I know about what it's like to be a therapist, I know about what it's like to be really depressed and shut down, and then have a lot of extraordinary challenging things come along that force you to open up in order to cope with them, and then and you're open more. I mean, I, I feel like both as a therapist and as a person, I, I know something about how people change and why they change. And, and I think that's the cornerstone of any book. You start with a character, and through the course of the book, somehow they become different. They get, go through changes. At the end of the book, they're not the same person as in the beginning. But some books, that doesn't seem like a realistic arc. And so I was, I was working to try and do something that was – at the same time that the plot was pretty outrageous in some ways – was believable in the sense of inside this guy's head, this is how a person would react if A and B happened, even if A and B aren't something that would really happen to someone.
1: And, and that's what I think is so fascinating about the about the way the story unfolds, Verlin, uh, because as we are seeing Tom dealing with situations, and again I'm going to um, to be able to talk around this so we don't spoil it, but I, I do think it's fascinating that as he's talking with the client, trying to get to understand um, what the client is thinking and the way the client thinks. One of the things that comes up, and I mentioned that to you before we went live here, is the issue of faith and calling and the idea of what one believes and how that can lead them to do things that some may consider bad where they may consider it just. What was that like for you to kind of play with in this book, the idea of good and evil and how some people saw what some people saw as evil as something that was more righteous?
0: Um, once again, for better or for worse, uh I had a personal experience where I got caught up with a very charismatic guy who decided he basically wanted to be a guru and start a small spiritual group. And I was more or less the first disciple and I bought into it and later discovered that despite the fact that he did ha he could do these kind of amazing non logical kinds of things that you you know, he can move his fingers around and you feel energy and gears kind of were around inside your body and stuff. And I was very scientific and logical and so this kind of thing was blowing my mind and I, I just kinda of signed up. And I was the first guy and then as other people gathered that made me sort of like the you know, the vice president or the assistant guru or something. And and I, I had to I had to deal with the fact that ultimately, um the guy was delusional at the same time that he was spiritual and very faith-based in the sense that he considered himself to be completely surrendered to whatever the universe seemed to require of him. And he would look around for clues about what that might be. Um, uh, He believed in uh, karma and he believed that things were happening for a reason and he had to play a certain role and I had to play a certain role. So I got into the surrender mode too, only not to the universe at large, to this guy, where I just pretty much did whatever he said for a couple of years. And, and then you have to come out of that. I graduated myself and everybody else out of that. Once I went to school to do a therapist and I got a little bit more clued in about psychology and what was up with this guy who was acting in very good faith and trying to help everyone, but it was just based on some stuff that wasn't based in reality, if you will. Yeah. So once I graduated myself out of that, then I had this period of trying to adjust to being back in the world, having been through that experience. What part of that should stick to my ribs? What part of that needed discarding? I was so used to having sort of a guidebook, you know, well, what would my guru say about this, that I wasn't facing each individual iteration anymore trying to figure it out in an ongoing way. And so all of that is is part of the book. There's, there's people in the book, as you say, that are driven from a spiritual perspective, uh, some in ways that we would see as immoral, some as ways that we would see as very upright and, and You know something we would admire but they're all doing things that make sense to them coming from where they're coming from
1: Right and, and that leads us to the predicament that Tom feels himself. And again, I want to talk around some things, but I want to say for those who are just tuning in, it's on the radio side or online, you're listening to Conversations Live. We're excited to welcome Verlin Darrow to our broadcast today. Verlin is the author of the new book, Murder for Liar. It's available now through our friends at Amazon.com. We're going to also remind you you can stay connected with Verlin as well. So, so Tom finds himself in an interesting predicament there where he's having another conversation with a character and I love the fact that he's able to, as someone who's seen as an authority himself, is not afraid to be able to talk to others even if he doesn't feel like they truly always understand or if he you know can can trust what he's even saying. But in one conversation in the book, you find him kind of wrestling with, okay, what do I need to do here? Do I need to to break the confidence you know of this individual? Mm-hmm. Um, in right. order to do what I think is right or, you know, what where what should I go? Right. That, that's, a, that's a tricky one, right? Because I think, you know, as you mentioned even in your profession, what was it like for you to kind of put yourself in Tom's situation there to kind of think about the trust that it being put in him and then the potential of him breaking that trust for what he saw as the greater good?
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're in a position of power like a therapist, uh, people are sort of yielding to you as, someone that knows more about things, someone that knows more about them even once they talk to you for a while. It it really ethically puts you into an interesting sort of position where betraying the trust is just not something you do easily. And there's laws, of course, on the books about what you're allowed to share and not share in reference to what people are telling you. And uh, where where I live in Northern California, for example, unless you make a specific threat towards a specific person about something that's going to happen in the near future – and I believe it's credible, I can't tell anyone, even if you say, I'm gonna go rob a bank soon, or or, I'm planning on killing somebody, but I'm not telling you who. I mean, by law, we're not supposed to break that confidence. But in the book, as in real life, I think it's a real ethical struggle sometimes about how to handle that circumstance. I mean, what's more important, an ethical rule written down that the state has handed you, or saving someone's life, if if that's on the other side of the coin in a situation. And, in his mind, that's kind of what's going on. Uh, he knows some things about what's going on with the burgers there's There's more than one I can at least say that. And he's concerned about can he share it? How would he share it? What will the repercussions be? At that point, he's not so much thinking about, "Oh, it could impact my career." He's thinking about,, well, will this cause more harm than good if i if I go in a given direction here?" And as usual, he's he's confused. And he's uncertain about what's real and not what's real and, and who's who and are these people who they seem to be. And so when he's trying to make these kinds of choices, he's not being able to come from a position of, of real equilibrium, either on a knowledge base or emotionally or anything. And the reader's along for the ride. You know, for a lot of the book, the reader is similarly sort of confused. There's a lot of little mysteries, one after the other, that, that you know, it's not like there's one big thing that gets solved it's like a lot of sort of mystifying things that happen and you're reading and reading to find out okay what's with that okay what's with that and it's the same as what he's going through Uh, hopefully not quite as frustrating and not quite as uh, you know uh, challenging or difficult you know uh, i'm not trying to make it hard on people per se Mm -hmm. but you know i think that's one way you get people to identify it's like you actually put them through a similar experience that the protagonist is having, albeit on a smaller scale with no actual murders in their lives. And that, you stop me if I'm answering too long, because I have a tendency to give long answers to what questions that might only deserve short ones, okay? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing just fine, uh, Verly. But okay. it does bring up an interesting point when it comes to Tom, though, because Tom literally is putting himself in harm's way um, mm-hmm. by trying to stop danger, by trying to stop others from being hurt. I think readers will get an idea of Tom being someone they would like to be. Is that an aspirational aspect of Tom of you, or is that someone that you see yourself as as well?
0: Um, You know, I've never really considered that before. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm committed to helping, and often I overhelp in, in circumstances where people don't ask for it or really require it. Because you know, unsolicited help is mostly experienced interference when you you just kind of shove it at people. Um, I have I have rescued a dog that fell through the ice, and I, you know I went spread myself out on the ice on a on a canal that was was shaky and reached in and pulled him out. I rescued somebody from the water, and I'm not a very good swimmer, but I'm tall so I could stand. And I I think in those situations, also I was in a 8.1 earthquake in another country once where uh, I was with another person that I was caretaking. And so when you're in those circumstances, I I don't think it's so much fire to be the kind of person that would rescue a dog. I just think in the moment when that happens, you do what you do. And there's nothing about it that feels heroic or special, even though you're putting yourself on the line or whatever. However, like most people, I try to organize my life where those kinds of things don't come along and I'm not really pressed to have to figure out can I be like Tom here or can I not manage it? That's that's all I can really come up with. I know that's not a direct answer, but I don't think I have one. Well, I, I think, you know, there will
1: be readers who will wonder, Verlin, if they would do what Tom does or what or would they just allow would they kind of just brush their hands of it and say, Hey, this is
0: not my this is I don't have a dog in oh, this fight. I, I hear what you're <laughs> saying. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wouldn't wonder too much. I think I would do some similar things to what he did. I, I Hopefully I would be more skillful at doing them and might be more creative about how to go about them. But this is not the kind of thing that, that you would just want to step away from and say, yeah, okay, whatever. Not my deal. I guess it's going to go however it's going to go. I mean, once you're privy to something, you have a responsibility to act in relationship to what you know, but maybe nobody else knows because who else can do it but you once you're in that yeah. circumstance. I see what you're getting at now. Yeah. yeah. I, I do think, I do think people will think, what would I do as opposed to what he's doing or could I do what he's doing or would I do something right. more sensible than what he's doing? I mean, that, the whole idea is he's really in his head because he's the first person narrator that's kind of stuck in his head and does a lot of thinking and overthinking and, wondering and pondering and so you know the reader does that too
1: yeah not to again give anything away but it seemed like you wanted to tie up some ends at the end but i'm curious if that was a way to keep you from having to write him in another book or did you or did you just feel like tom's story was done in this one
0: uh i thought his story was done and i get much more satisfaction when books sort of come to the end of the narrative arc with with if not a bang, at least a sense of uh, true denouement or a resolution or whatever. I, I don't never. I've only just recently written a book for the first time that I think of as a, a potential first book of a series. I, they, they always feel so to stand alone. And one of the main reasons, is just by the time I finish with all the editing and everything else, I am sick of these characters. I'm sick of this place. <laughs> I'm sick of this book. It's like I've had it. I've been doing a whole year of, you know, rewriting and fixing it up and satisfying my editor that this chapter needs to be in a different order and all the rest of it. You just eventually kind of get sick of the whole thing, even though you like the book. And I go back and I reread them and I still like them. I, you know, plunging back into not being able to develop a character but being stuck with who he already is. It, it's just kind of less creative for me. Mm-hmm. Got gotcha, gotcha.
1: well, you, got Well, it it really is an enjoyable read for sure. We invite our audience to get their copy of it. Again, the book is called Murder for a Liar by Verlin Darrow. You all can get it through our friends at Amazon.com. It's published by the Wild Rose Press. You guys can find them online as well. And Verlin, you actually are online as well. Let our audience know how to stay connected with you.
0: Uh, there's a com, which is a website that I've proudly put together myself with no real technical skills. There's some good apps out there and it's got all kinds of things on there. It's got, uh, you know, reviews about the latest book. It's got the three other books that I've published with blurby stuff and review stuff. I mean, I just, I have a web, if you have a website, you put whatever you got. So I got a section with poetry. I got some essays about spiritual stuff. I got some little aphorisms that I've made up that I like a lot. I even put part of the CD I, I did years ago when I was trying to be a singer songwriter. It's, It's all in there somewhere, probably more than anybody would like to know. And then if people want to contact me, I'm fine with them sending me email for that matter, too, which is berlinbarrow at gmail.com. All right.
1: So make sure you guys are staying connected with Berlin. Berlin, again, congratulations to you. Thank you again for the time and looking forward to speaking with you again.
0: You bet. Thanks so much.
1: More than welcome. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webson. As always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Let's go make today amazing. Take care.